podcast. It's called the Matthew West Podcast. I really hope you like it. My friends, I've got to tell you about a company that my wife Emily and I have fallen in love with this year. It's called Simply Earth. If you love essential oils or just want to make sure that the air in your home is toxin-free, then you're going to love this company as much as we do. But I don't want to just tell you about this by myself. I'm bringing in the woman who makes this house a home. Please welcome to the Matthew West Podcast, Mrs. Emily West. Emily, thanks for joining me. Sure. Hey, uh, let's talk about smells. Uh, What would you say I smell like? Do I smell good? You smell great. Really? Mm -hmm. Guess what? Sucker, you got fooled. You got schooled. Simply Earth has made you believe that I smell good. But it's really their essential oils that are making our home smell wonderful. And you'll never discover what my real scent is. Do you know what it is? (laughs) It's feet. It's Doritos and feet. That's what I smell like. A gym locker room. But thanks to Simply Earth, our house smells awesome. Smells like lavender and... And happiness. (laughs) Unicorns. But more importantly, we know that our kids are breathing in some toxin-free air, which right now, it's super important. More than ever, isn't it? It really is, So every month we get this box from Simply Earth. You're actually holding one of the boxes, and each box has a different theme, right? What's Mm -hmm. the theme of the one you're holding? This one's women's wellness. Women's wellness. That sounds delightful. And we get to put these recipes together. It's super fun. It's like a food subscription box, but you don't want to eat what's in this box, right? It's more fun. We get to put the recipes together. We get to know that our air is going to be toxin-free. This company's amazing. It really is. You know, what I love most about Simply Earth, I'm going to buy essential oils regardless, but what I love about this is they give 13% of their profits back to fight human trafficking. So I figure, you know, that's a little thing I can do, support this company to make the world a better place. Yeah, we're going to buy essential oils somewhere, Mm -hmm. and if we know this company is changing the world and we can take part in that that's a win-win so here's what you guys can do if you want to check this out and subscribe it's 39 bucks a month it's an awesome deal go to simplyearth.com slash west you're going to enter the code west and you're going to get a 20 dollars gift card with your first box when you subscribe today that's simplyearth.com slash west use the code west get your 20 dollars gift card make the air in your home toxin free hide your husband's feet smell and change the world by ending human trafficking. That's incredible. Thanks to Simply Earth for making all that happen. And thank you, Mrs. Emily West. You're welcome. All right, let's get on with the rest of the show that we have for you today. I am so happy, by the way. I'm more than happy. What's a word that describes more than happy? Today's guest would be the perfect person to ask that question. Why? Because he's a master wordsmith. He is an incredible storyteller, one of my favorite authors and speakers, one of my heroes. Now, have you ever heard an old quote that said something like, don't ever meet your heroes, right? It's implying that most likely you'll be let down if you do. Well, that quote just doesn't sit right with me when I think about today's guest. So I went to a source of even greater quotes, this magical place called Pinterest, and this is what I found. Whoever said never meet your heroes obviously had the wrong heroes. That's how I feel about Max Lucado. Max's books have sold over 100 million copies worldwide in over 54 languages. He says that he writes books for people who don't read. Well, that's a lot of people who don't read, but they're being ministered to by his words day in and day out. 
He's also been a longtime pastor of a church in San Antonio, Texas, where I've traveled, done concerts, and led worship. He's one of my heroes, and now he's one of my friends, and I can't wait for you to hear this conversation. Let's go to the story house with Max Licato. I get the chance to talk to a master storyteller, and I'm going to dare to begin by telling you a story that I hope will set up our conversation. Does that sound like a plan? That's great. Okay, so one summer, home from college, I had to make some money. And I had two options, okay? My two options were to work for the park district in steel-toed boots, blue jeans, a bright orange shirt, side-by-side with some uh, older dudes who smoked their $2 cigars from the 7-Eleven, and we would spend the summer mowing lawn in the midsummer heat. That was one option. (laughs) The other option was my dad, a pastor, was in between youth pastors. He was on a search to hire the perfect youth pastor and had yet to find one. Turns out those are in short supply, by the way. (laughs) And he offered me the job as his part-time youth leader at the church. I chose the air-conditioned option, (laughs) and I showed up for the first day on the job working for my dad as his youth pastor, and I said, okay, what do I do? This is no joke. And I figured he was going to give me some sort of a three-step plan, Max, you know, to start summertime revival for the youth group. And I'm thinking big stuff, right? I said, what do I do first? And he goes, all right, here you go. He hands me a Bible. (laughs) which now I think about it, you know, the fact that he didn't assume that I already had a Bible was scary, but he hands me a Bible and no joke, a stack of Max Licato books. Oh my god. Books written by Max Licato. He said, you go to your office and every single day, I want you to start your day by reading your Bible and go read through some of these books written by Max Licato. And at that, I followed those orders. And every day I went to my makeshift office, which was actually in the far corner of the nursery. And I sat down in a room that smelled like dirty diapers and spit up. (laughs) And I read my Bible and that began my love for the writing of Max Licato. And many years later, here I am getting the chance to call you a friend. We've traveled together. We've done services together. And now we're getting the chance to talk together. So thanks for joining me here on this podcast. Well, here's my take on that, Matthew. The Bible part, that's understandable. (laughs) The uh, poopy diaper, that might have been punishment. (laughs) And the reading of Lakato books, there's only one word for that. that? Penance. Penance. (laughs) I thought you were a Protestant. We don't believe in penance. Your dad was just, (laughs) he, he was just counterbalancing the scales so you could go to heaven. That's what that was all about. Trust me, that was the least of the punishments. (laughs) Reading your books was an escape from those dirty diapers, I'm telling you. Uh, And you know, the the outcome of that, Max, was funny because, I don't know if you know this, but my first songs, I basically would lift your book titles, and let's just say I could have made a greatest hits of songs that were never greatest hits, and they were all titled after your book. So we have <laughs> When God Whispers Your Name. I'm sure I was writing a song called On the Anvil or, uh, or Six Hours One Friday. I, basically, what I'm trying to say is I'm a fan. I'm well, a huge fan, and I'm glad to talk to you. It's more than mutual. I love you. <laughs> I love all the fun things we've got to do together and all the fun things we're planning to do together. Some of those trips we've been on and ministry opportunities, are, they're a lot of fun, but they're also extremely significant, and uh, you're just the best. You're a pro. You're always prepared. Your heart is so good, and you're just fun to be with. 
Well, thank you, Max. Yeah. That means we. I think we should just end the interview right now after that. Okay, <laughs> we'll stop right there. We'll stop right there. But most recently, we got to travel to Alaska together. Wasn't that uh, fun? suffering for Jesus in Alaska? Wasn't I that fun? My that goodness. was amazing. Now, I don't know if we can capture for everybody the significance of that night that Dave Stone and I had the Great Alaskan Joke <laughs> Contest, and you were one of the judges. You yeah. and, let's see, who Anita Renfro. Yes. I can't recall all the judges, but I don't know when I've laughed so hard. <laughs> and that was the epitome of inside jokes, wasn't it? It was like that we was. were on this big week-long summer camp in yeah. Alaska with, with yeah. a thousand of our closest friends. <laughs> I don't know that I've ever laughed so hard. People don't realize, if they've never heard you speak, they don't realize that you pretty much moonlight as a comedian, too, right? <laughs> I've heard your sermons before, and you always begin your messages with something that makes me laugh. Well, uh, there are people who say my sermons are a joke. <laughs> See, there you go. Where's the drum? Put him. He'll be here all episode, folks. Be sure to tip your waiter. <laughs> oh man. So Max, your very first book was it called On the Anvil? Was that your first yes. book that was yes, published? Yes, it was. It was. Yeah. Was that your first book that was written, or your first book that was published? It was the first book that was written and published, both of them. So you were batting a thousand right out of the gates. Well, two thoughts on that. Number one, it took me 15 submissions to get it published. I sent it to 14 publishers before I got a yes. And so not quite out of the gate, but eventually. Now we're talking. And then number two, to be honest, it's a mediocre book. It was my first book. There's <laughs> a lot I would redo, but it was a first attempt. It was a first attempt at writing. So you took the manuscript, and if I remember correct, I've read up on your life story, and you were in Brazil at the time. Yeah. Church planting, is this correct? And, yeah. And you had begun writing through that whole experience. After college, you were right. writing and had the idea to kind of collect the different things you'd been writing, and you created this manuscript. Yeah. And you mailed it off 14 times? 15 times. The 15th one said yes. What happened is I was a part of a mission team. I finished seminary. I went to Miami, Florida, and uh, I was there on a church staff for three years just getting some ministry experience. Okay. And then our mission team, there were nine families that eventually all made it to Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. But when I was in Miami, I had to write an article for the weekly church bulletin. Okay. Probably back in the days when you were a youth pastor, (laughs) y'all might have had a church bulletin. Absolutely. And we would send it out every week. The church I was a part of, just a delightful church in Miami, Florida, there were only three people on staff. I was the third one hired, and it was a church of about four or 500 people, and we, each of the pastors would write an article. The senior pastor wrote the front page. You opened the bulletin. There was only one fold, and you opened it up, and there was on the left the youth pastor on the right, there was my part. I was the education pastor, what we call. And that's when I got hooked on writing. Wow. And so when we got to Brazil, a friend of mine said, hey, you ought to take all those articles that you wrote. See if you can put them in a manuscript and get them published. So I thought, well, you know, no harm in trying. So I had to type them up. This was pre-computer. <laughs> it was almost back in the days when we used smoke signals, but a little beyond that. <laughs> And so I typed them up and Xeroxed them or had them Xeroxed. 
and put them in packages and started mailing them to publishers. And I got 14 rejections. Wow. And then the 15th one, Tyndale House Publishing, from your area where you grew up there in Chicago, right? That's right, yeah. From Wheaton, Illinois. So they were the yes? They were the yes. Wow. Wendell Hawley was the publisher. He picked it up, and that got me my... It's just like music, right? Oh, yeah. You try, and you try, and you try, and finally you get somebody to say, hey, this person's worth listening to, Yeah. and all of a sudden you have a little bit of credibility, and so that'll open other doors. It makes me think, you know, I got rejected by every record label in Nashville, and sometimes I made the mistake, if I wanted it to, it could end at, hey, don't call us, we'll call you. But sometimes my pride just couldn't leave it at that, and so I'd want to find out what it was they didn't like about me. It turns out it was yeah. pretty much everything. <laughs> so I always <laughs> joke that they'd say things like, well, he's not talented enough, you know, he's not a good enough singer, he's not charismatic enough, he's not handsome enough. <laughs> and then I'd go home and cry out to God in my bed at night saying, Lord, I know that that last one is not true. I know that I got the looks for this. <laughs> I know that I got the looks for a podcast. <laughs> you got the face for radio. Exactly. What gave you, though, after sending it out 14 times, was it just kind of no response, or did you sometimes get harsh criticism, and what was it in you that kept going 15 times? Yeah, that is a great question. I can still remember that I had three types of rejection. One, they didn't even open the package. Okay. They would send me a standard letter that says, we don't read unsolicited manuscripts. <laughs> dear writer or dear author. They didn't even put my name on it. Absolutely. I got five of those. I got five that said, we don't think your quality of writing is where it needs to be for whatever reason. Mm. And then there were four that were more thoughtful. And you could tell that a publishing committee had looked at it. And they would give specific reasons. For example, I recall one of them said, this shows a lot of potential, but our catalog already has an author like you who writes in this style. So we don't okay. have, but maybe next year. And so they were encouraging. Yeah. And then the last one was the one that said, I'm pleased to inform you that we have met and accepted your book for publication. So I'm happy they did, because I didn't have a 16th address. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say, there's not that many publishers. Not that many publishers, <laughs> yeah. What I love is how vividly you remember the rejection letters and the different yeah. tiers, the different categories. And that probably is a good indication that you also remember where you were yeah. And what type of rejoicing ensued when you got the acceptance letter? It was life-changing. And what was amazing is that about the same time that I found out that I was going to get published, but it was within two or three days later, we found out that Deanlin was pregnant with our first child. Wow. It was a watershed week. Matthew, I never expected to get published. I really didn't. I think I could handle the rejections because my expectations were low. Interesting. And so when I found out that, hey, I'm going to get published, I thought, wow, <laughs> I'm going to get to write a book in my life. But before I knew it, I had an idea for another book. Wow. And then another book. And so I went back to one of those publishers who had told me, we like your writing style. It shows potential, but we don't have space for you in our catalog stay in touch. Well, I got in touch with them. And I said, hey, here's another idea that I have. It's not finished yet, 
and they really liked it. And they became my primary publisher for the next four years. That's incredible. So it opened the door. That says a lot about the power of persistence. When somebody encouraged you, hey, these church bulletins are pretty good. Was that one of the first seeds planted where somebody was saying you had a gift for writing? Yeah. Or did you feel for a long time that this was something the Lord was going to use your life to do? I always loved writing. I always loved books. But I never, in my wildest imagination, God would use my writing to create books. Never dawned on me at all. When I wrote those articles was the very first time I felt the deep significance that you might feel, I'm sure you feel, when people hear your music and hear your well-crafted, beautiful songs. The deep sense of, oh, wow, this really connects in a deep fashion. Wow. Here's my take on writing, and I bet it's similar to music. Writing goes deeper than speaking, because in writing, when somebody is reading, they have created a moment, and they have invited you into their world. Hmm. You think about it. They've gone in a corner, or they've sat in a chair, they've turned on a lamp, they've silenced the rest of the world, they've opened a book. All these things they've gone through as if they're inviting you into that moment. Mm. Whereas speaking, they may or may not be happy to hear you speak. I mean, they may be one of 500 people in a church auditorium, and they have all these distractions going on. Mm. Or they may or may not be happy to be at a church retreat. Right. You know, and so (laughs) it's a little bit different. So writing, and I bet music is similar. Yeah. There's a moment created that you get to enter, and that's why it's so valuable. I never stop saying to people, thank you for letting my music be part of your life. Mm. I find myself saying that when someone offers a compliment of how a song had entered into their story at a time where they really needed that message and the Lord used it. Yeah, It does feel like there's this deeper connection that takes place. And and your writing has done that for me on more than one occasion. It's funny, even as I'm hearing you talk, I think about the times because you would write in a lot of your books, you'll share illustrations from your own family, just like I do from the stage. Yeah. Like we draw from our experiences a lot. And so I remember like your wife's name and your daughters and and then getting to meet them was like so crazy for me. Cause it's like, wait a minute, I read, I read about that. I know stories <laughs> about when your kids were younger. Does it ever get easier? Even as you've had success, but even as you've released all of these books, the reason why I'm struggling with this question is because I know what the answer to the question is for me. Does it ever get easier to put your work out there, your words out there. Like when you send a finished manuscript off to your publisher, Mm. are you like filled with confidence at this point in your career or is there some fragility there? No. Oh, no. In fact, for me, the most difficult day of the year, because I write a book a year and each year I submit it to my editor. Really, I have two editors and I send it to them. And until I hear from them, which is going to be four or five days, I'm just having to talk myself off the ledge over and (laughs) over again. Yeah. I think, oh, no, they're going to hate it. Oh, no, they're not going to like it. Oh, I don't even want to think about it. And I just have these thoughts. This is after you've had all 
all of these books published. Yeah. I mean, I think one might be tempted to think you're on cruise control almost. Yeah, you know better than that, right? I know, I know. Does you feel the same or can you relate? I'm scared to death when I release a record. And I think some of that is pressure I place on myself. I wonder about you. I think sometimes having something embraced that you do on a widespread level, like for me, in my world, it would be, you know, if a song becomes a number one song or something Mm -hmm. like that. For you, it's, you know, New York Times bestseller. Do you ever feel pressure to repeat the success that another book had? Or are you kind of past that point on some levels? No, no. You have to develop coping mechanisms, or I do, to not put that pressure on yourself because it's out there. It's out there. And we've all heard stories about artists and athletes who have a level of success, and because they think they have to have that level all the time, they burn out or they freak out. So what I did early on is I gave myself permission. And you're a baseball freak, right? Oh, yeah. So yeah. this works for you. I would just say, okay, all I want to do is get on base. I just want to get on base. <laughs> and you know what? As a batter, as a baseball player, I can remember using that when I was batting. And I found that if I said, I got to hit a home run, I never could. Okay. But if I told myself, Okay, I'm just going to get on base, even if I just have to pop yeah. one over the shortstop. Yeah. My swing would be much better. Yeah. And that same mentality works for me with writing. If I just say, okay, I'm just going to write a decent book. It doesn't have to be a mm. bestseller. It doesn't have to be, you know, a famous book. And you know what, Matthew, looking back, some of my books just got me on base. I mean, they're good books, but they're not going to have a long shelf life. But I think a time or two, I've been able to hit a pretty good ball. Yeah. And so that's my coping mechanism for that. Well, I love that. That, again, speaks to the power of persistence. And like you said, coping mechanisms. Are there books that you've written that maybe didn't reach whatever level of acclaim that you would have hoped, but they're some of your favorites? Yeah, and vice versa. Hmm. You know, there's some that I've written that I thought, okay, this is a book for a certain audience, it's not going to be widely received. There's a book I wrote called Outlive Your Life. I wrote it in conjunction with World Vision. So it's kind of a partnership between World Vision and me. And it's about having a compassionate global outlook on life, you know, caring for the poor, remembering the forgotten. Well, that little sucker just keeps going all over the world, you know. Wow. It's done exceptionally well. And then there's another book or two, and I'm not going to disclose the title because your audience will say, I'm not going to buy that book. (laughs) (laughs) No, seriously. I wrote a book that we all thought was going to do great based on the life of Joshua in the Old Testament. And it did fine, but it wasn't nearly what we hoped it would do. So sometimes I think it's a matter of what season the world is in kind of what other books are being released about that time. Right. You know? Yeah, there's a lot of factors. A lot of factors you can't control. Just like in our lives, I mean, there's things that are out of our control. Yeah. What we were saying about getting on base is like towards the end of Paul's life, when he kind of summed up his life by saying, I have finished the race, mm-hmm. I have kept the faith. I always think about like how he didn't say he won the race. That's a great point. He said he finished. That's a great point. He was happy to have faithfully run his race. And I love that sentiment about getting, I'm going to think about that. The next time I write a song, I'm going to go, you know what, before I psych myself out, because one of the thoughts I always have, Max, is it's a battle for me mentally when I sit down to write. In fact, you and I have the same literary agent, 
who's also a baseball freak, but you want to talk about intimidating is when I'm working on a book and I have to send it to the same guy who reads Max Lucado's manuscripts. <laughs> that can play mind games on me so much. Well, the secret is he's never read anything since the very first one. <laughs> <laughs> I hope Steve's listening to this right now. But just that idea of just getting on base, because sometimes, do you ever hear these voices? For me, it's like, hey, man, what are you even trying to do writing a song or a book today? It's all been said before. Yeah. And then I feel said. like the voice that combats that is, yeah, it's all been said, but not the way that I'm about to speak through There you. it is. Not the way I'm about to say it through your story. There it is. That's it. And it's like an artist. Who knows how many sunsets have been painted? Hmm. But nobody's going to paint it the way you paint it. You're going to see color. You're going to see an angle that's not yet been seen. And so we can come at it with that confidence. Yeah, that's and good. also we can come at it with the idea that, hey, I'm just here to serve. You know, if we can keep that mindset. Yeah. I'm here to serve God, to do my best as if it were a gift for the Lord. Hmm. So, Lord, I'm just going to write this or I'm going to record this for you you use it however you see fit. So good. Now, that's one thing to do when you're just writing in your journal or recording in your basement. I know it gets more complex when people are depending upon your tours and your records for sure. livelihood. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so it does get a little more complex. But at the core, we're still serving God. I love that. You pastor at a church, and you've been at the same church that I've visited several times, Oak Hills in San Antonio, Texas. How many years have you been with Oak Hills? I've been here since 1988. And after all these years, you're still, and I've seen it, you're still serving faithfully at this church. I guess this may sound like a weird question, but why? Yeah. You don't need it for a job or a paycheck. Yeah. You write these books every year. Why are you still serving at a church? I'm really interested in that. Yeah. In fact, I've not drawn a salary from the church since 1990 because, I mean, I was making such ample income from writing books that it just seemed unnecessary and greedy. And so I've enjoyed a wonderful income. God, thank you so much wow. for that blessing. But I've always wanted to stay in church leadership, on a church staff, for several reasons. I really love this church. Uh, it's not a perfect church. It's a great church, and I think that being a part of a local church keeps me honest. I feel like when I get to preach and when I get to visit people, even do some counseling on occasion, and also even attend budget meetings, and it makes it more—what's a good word, Matthew? Just kind of honest. Yeah, it seems like it keeps your finger on the pulse of, you know, what's going on in the stories of people's lives around you. Yeah. It seems like that would inform what you're supposed to be writing about. It's exactly what you've done, you know, when you were soliciting people to send you their stories. Right. And so you would base a song on that. Right. That's exactly the same idea. You're not just off, you know, in a mountain cabin somewhere with no input. Right. You're going in loaded with a suitcase full of real stories. Yeah and creating music to speak to those stories. I've always encouraged, if I'm ever speaking to youth pastors who are where I used to be in that smelly nursery of an office, but just <laughs> encouraging youth leaders, youth pastors or pastors that, you know, if you took the time to get to know the stories around you, in your congregation, in your youth group, if you asked them and if you got to know them well enough, you'd never have to wonder what you're supposed to preach on. You'd never have to wonder what you're supposed to speak about. So with your sermon series, does it begin with your book first, and then you teach out of the book. You said you write a book every year. 
are you building a sermon series that you're sharing to the church and then you're taking that to write a book or is it different every time? Exactly. The sermon series precedes the book and the sermon series could very well become a book, but not guaranteed. Okay. And so there will be on rare occasion a sermon series. And I think, you know, I really don't see this becoming a book. That happened three or four years ago. I preached through the book of Daniel. And as you know, the book of Daniel, the back half of it, is pretty heavy-duty prophecy. Right. I love reading about prophecy, but I think there's about 3,000 people who communicate prophecy better than I do. Gotcha. And so I thought, I don't really have anything to add. I just don't think I do. I think it was great for the church. Sure. But I don't think I have anything to add to the church global. But my lane, where I feel strong, is in words of encouragement, words that help people trust God's presence, help us not to be worried. And so I tend to really feel like that's the lane I run in. And so when I write a book on that theme or in that area, I feel pretty confident that that'll become a book. By the way, I was going to say, if you ever have one of those sermon series that you think, Okay, that's not going to turn into a book. Can you just send it to me send and I'll, I'll turn it into my next book? Your rejects or somebody else's future bestseller. That's all I want to say. You feel like you could write a song on the Antichrist, Matthew? <laughs> there you go. Something dark. That's right. That's right. What's the phrase Jesus uses about the desolation of the temple? Yeah, Yeah, that's going to be a real inspiring song there. The ten toes on the statue. Yes. That's the whole second verse. That's a real barn burner. That's going to lead to revival. That's it, buddy. Come and count my toes. I am the ten nations of Rome. Yeah, I'm all over this. This is gold. All right, everybody heard it here first. Our first collaboration is a song about the Antichrist. Abomination of Desolation. Oh, there's the rhyme right there. There it is. Abomination, Desolation. It sounds like some, you're going to have to dye your hair black. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you and me dressed up like Metallica or something. Now you're talking. Now you're talking. Well, they can't all be good ideas. But but speaking of your books of encouragement, okay, so... Here's what I've noticed. Our world has been completely turned upside down. Normal does not exist anymore. A new kind of normal seems to be taking shape, but everybody's lives look nothing like they did just a couple of months ago. I have come back to some books that you've written, and I wonder if you've experienced this too, but the words that the Lord inspired you to write at one point in time feel like they take on a whole new meaning as different things happen in our world. And there's two books in particular that I've come back to that you've written. And one is Anxious for Nothing, and the other one is How Happiness Happens. Among other books that you've written, I just wonder if you ever experienced like these books come full circle and take on a new meaning even in your own life. Yes, yes. And I think that's just the beauty of God's Word. These books that we write or these songs that we write under certain circumstances really take on a new life when people are battling anxiety or they're battling fears. There's only a few emotions that we're going to battle all of our lives, you Mm. know, and one of them is fear. One of them is guilt. Another one is feelings of insignificance. Wow. And so you can bet that anytime you speak about fear, you speak about guilt, speak about insignificance, you're 
going to be helping people face some issues that they'll face through their entire lifetime. I want to just quote a couple of things that you've written, and specifically in your book, Anxious for Nothing, I read, the land of stars and stripes has become the country of stress and strife. And in the book, you describe a situation, a hypothetical situation that if if a toaster was broken or if you had something that you needed to be fixed and you took it to a specialist in that area, in your kind of humorous way, you describe these just ridiculous scenarios of if you were to sort of hover over that specialist who's fixing what's broken. I think you even described camping out, you know, making sure that you're there able to help the specialist at every turn and just how ridiculous that would be because the specialist knows best how to fix what's broken. And then on page 148 in this book, Anxious for Nothing, you write these words and you you encourage the reader to repeat this phrase. I hereby resign as ruler of the universe. (laughs) And I just loved that. And I thought that sentence really speaks to kind of a world that's being brought to its knees and every single one of us in our own way being humbly reminded that no matter how much we'd like to think we are, we are not the ones in control of this life. I think surrendering control is a matter of, number one, realizing you never really had it. We like to think we did, but the most anxious people are control freaks, and and I know that because I can be one. Me too. But number two, the whole idea of control is to acknowledge that God does. That's why the theme of sovereignty is so important in a time of chaos like this. I love the story of Joseph in the Old Testament, and that's the book you'll get through this. Yes. And the theme of sovereignty reappears over and over. Now, Joseph is really not recognized or thought of when we think of a great theologian. You know, we think of the Apostle Paul or the Apostle John. But I tell you one thing, Joseph, he got sovereignty. You know, that great statement in Genesis 50, 20, when he told his brothers, you intended evil against me, but God intended it for good. That's a statement of sovereignty that evil came my way, but God took it and rewove it and used it into something good. So good. So this idea that God is active, that he's sovereign, that he's busy, that he's not napping, he's not twiddling his thumbs, Mm. but that he's sitting on the throne and he's taking that which was intended as evil and recasting it, reusing it, reissuing it to accomplish his sovereign purpose. That's the message that we need in a day like today. That book, You'll Get Through This, is another book of yours that is so timely right now. I've seen that you've been doing a daily series about that as well, right? Yeah. Yeah, I've been doing a little seven to eight minute messages and and putting them on social media based on You'll Get Through This. And we're actually going to begin an online Bible study, inviting people who want to study through the book to be a part of it. Because the story of Joseph is a story of a global calamity, just like the one we're facing. Right. And so the sovereignty of God positioned Joseph in Egypt, positioned Joseph in Pharaoh's court, positioned Joseph as the prime minister. I mean, you talk about a massive turnaround of events. So Joseph's story invites us to have hope. Right. And God's got a solution for this that we've not even seen. Nobody saw Joseph coming out of the land of Canaan to solve the problem. 
God has a solution we've not even seen yet. And someday we'll be able to speak the words that Joseph spoke, you know, that God intended this for good, that he was going to somehow yeah. draw something good. out. One of the things I notice when I read that story through Genesis is how many times I see the words, the Lord was with Joseph. Mm. In the middle of how many times Joseph had been abandoned yep. throughout the story of Joseph, yep. how the Lord was with Joseph, the mm. Lord was with Joseph. And then when it's all said and done, Joseph is speaking to that situation saying, you intended to harm me, mm. but God intended it for good. And that can only be spoken from somebody who felt that the Lord was with him through every triumph and every trial, yeah. through being abandoned. He knew that the Lord was with him and his hand was upon him. And and that's a word for right now, for people to realize that God is with you. I love that the importance of God's sovereignty in a time like this, for us to know that he is in control so we can take our hands off. We can carry Underwood this. We can say, Jesus, take the wheel, right? Exactly. Do you know who Carrie Underwood is? <laughs> yeah, I do. I do. I do. I so do. I just want to make sure my reference wasn't lost. Yeah, yeah. You know, when Joseph was in Potiphar's household as a servant and he ascended, you know, and became over the entire household, there's no mention of Joseph as a great manager, no mention of Joseph as a great leader, right. though apparently he was. But four times in that part of the story, there is that phrase, but the Lord was with Joseph, wow. or the Lord blessed Joseph, or the Lord blessed Potiphar's household because of Joseph. So it's God's presence that made the difference. And that's what we can hold on to in, in a season like this. So good. I love that. And I'm going to write this down. I have written it down. I showed it to my wife today. I was getting ready to speak to you, and I always run my questions by my wife beforehand. And we both just loved that sentence. I hereby resign as ruler of the universe. And uh, that's something I think a lot of us are being brought to of going. And there's a lot of lost and hurting people. Someone yeah. who might be listening to this right now doesn't have a personal relationship with Christ yet. And yet here we are at a time in our lives where things are out of our control and people are desperate for hope. And I love how you've continued just to use your voice, your online broadcasts, your ministry with the church, your books day in and day out are pointing people to where they can find hope in times where they're feeling nothing but fear and anxiousness. I do have a bone to pick with you about your book, How Happiness Happens. <laughs> you sent me an ice cream maker, by the way. Did you know that? I did. <laughs> or was it your people? No, that was me. <laughs> so I'm trying to watch my diet, and then Max Licato sends me an ice cream maker. So I want to <laughs> I want to thank you for the fact that I wasn't quite ready for my uh, last <laughs> album's photo shoot. But the other bone that I have to pick regarding this book is, you know, I struggle so much with contentment and happiness. And I get on stage and just real talk here, like I get on stage and a lot of times like that might be the time where I express the most joy in my life. And then I get off stage and focus on everything that was wrong about the show. Or I like to say I suffer from empty seat syndrome where I have the ability to get on stage and look out in the crowd and nine out of 10 seats can be filled with people who are just singing their hearts out. And for some reason, yeah. my eyes see the empty seat and it ruins the night for me. Yeah. So searching for happiness, I get so excited when I get this ice cream maker and I get this book about happiness. The subtitle says, Finding Lasting Joy in a World of Comparison, Disappointment, and Unmet Expectations. So I start to read through this book, and I'm surprised to find out that at every turn in this book, you're pointing towards finding happiness by caring about other people, mm. by reaching out and looking at those around you, by becoming a character 
in somebody else's story, loving one another, greeting one another. And I, I started to get kind of annoyed because I was like, no, 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 wait a minute. I want to talk about my misery. I want to stay in my misery and I want to keep my eyes focused on me. And then I want you to give me the three easy steps towards a happy life. And at every turn, you pointed me towards, no, lifting my eyes off of my own circumstances, looking at somebody else and how can I be more like Jesus to them? I didn't see that coming. And I'm joking when I say I have a bone to pick, but it, it kind of reminded me just how a lot of times my own misery is caused by my eyes looking down and focusing on my circumstances and my own little world. It sure is. And for all of us, that's the struggle. That's why that phrase from Jesus, it's more blessed to give than receive, is so valuable because it really is more blessed. We really do discover a blessedness, a happiness that comes when we are givers rather than focusing on when we are receivers. Max, what would you say, you know, speaking of that subtitle of your book, it says, finding lasting joy in a world of comparison, disappointment, and unmet expectations. So here's the thing I always wonder, you know, sometimes I'll listen to an interview with someone who I admire, and I know there's a lot of people listening who admire you greatly, and the temptation's going to come to compare their story with your story. And I'm not talking about the stories you write in your book, but just the story of your life that has many chapters filled with success. And it's clear, you know, you've had this public platform and God's used your ministry in a big way. You know, someone might be tempted to compare their gifts to someone else and think, well, God uses someone who can write books like Max more than he could use the gifts that he's given me. You know, what do you say to somebody who can kind of get caught in that place in their story where comparison is defeating them and making them think that God possibly couldn't use their story in as meaningful of a way? Somebody once said, I don't know who it was. I just heard somebody in a conversation say, comparison is the poison pill of the soul. <laughs> it really is, you know, and to think that we could compare ourselves like, I don't know, like you could compare pieces of furniture, it's crazy because we're each different. We're each different. Our background is different. Our personalities are different. Our bodies are different. Our circumstances are different. It's not like we came off of an, an assembly line all intended to be driven around the same racetrack. It's just crazy when you stop and think about it. Right. But we do. We compare ourselves one with the other. And we've got to just fight against that. We do. The scriptures teach us that each one of us is made in a different way. There's none of us exactly the same. So if we can resign from trying to compare ourselves or, or outdo one another, really, if we can learn to rejoice with someone else's successes, because we're acknowledging that God is working through their life, uh, that's a secret to happiness. So good. The secret to unhappiness is when we think, I'm supposed to be just like everybody else. Right. But I get it. I get it. I'm a pastor. Yeah. You know, this whole idea of church attendance. Right. How many people show up? Yeah. Uh, how many people are there that Sunday as opposed to when so-and-so was our preacher? How many books has this sold? How many followers do I have? I battle it. I battle it. Yeah. I don't always win the fight, but we got to keep fighting it. Well, and I got to say, what you've shown me too is just that as much as I admire your books and your gift for writing and your speaking, 
what has spoken to me as loud, if not louder, is the character that I've seen you display and the way that you love on people and the way that when someone's speaking to you, you're not looking over their shoulder to see if somebody more important is coming. And uh, I've seen you display that day in and day out in our interaction with each other. You didn't hear the way that I introduced my guests for the day, but I talk about the quote, never meet your heroes, you know? And I say, boy, that quote does not hold up very well when it comes to the chance that I've had to get to know you. I want to close out our time together by asking you this question. And this is a question that I ask every guest. And I guess you could say we're going to end by going back to the beginning. And I talk a lot from the stage about how I found God on a blue couch. I was sitting in my childhood home in Chicago, Illinois, coming home from school, looking for a day game a Chicago Cubs game, and I accidentally stumbled across a Billy Graham crusade. And that became a very profound moment Mm. in my life, Max, a moment where my faith went from being a family connection to a very real and personal thing. And I prayed with my mom on that blue couch with Billy Graham in the background. Mm. And so I talk a lot about the blue couch moment. And the reason why I talk a lot about it, Max, is because some days uh, on any given day, I feel like I'm a million miles away from that yeah. that innocence, that kid who just called on the name of Jesus, you know, and was overwhelmed. And so I love to hear people's blue couch moment. I love to hear their story of a moment when your faith became real to you like never before that maybe set your feet on the path that's led you to where you are now. Can you think of what that might be for you? It comes quickly to mind. And thanks for sharing yours. I've heard you tell that story. It's just so powerful. For me, I was a sophomore in college. Our mutual friend, Steve Green, your literary agent and mine, and I were roommates. Steve was such a powerful influence on me because I was a heavy drinker, a heavy partier, I was not the kind of guy you would want your daughter to date. I would barely pay attention in college. I I smoked all the time. I drank all the time. I was a mess. I was a mess. And I knew it. I knew I was a mess, Matthew. My brother battled alcoholism. His life was already getting off the rails, and my life was headed in the same direction. Mm. But thanks to Steve's influence, I would go to church, even though on many Sunday morning I had a hangover. Wow. And I'd sit on the back row, but I went to a church, and it was a pretty sizable church for the day. They probably had 2,000 people in attendance. Well, still, that's a big church, but mm. back then it was really big. But I would kind of position myself safely in the back. Little by little, I would begin to work my way up. Every week I'd sit a little bit closer. The pastor, he's still a great friend of mine today, had such a heart, uh, such a tenderness about him. He announced that there was going to be a series of Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday evening specials in which they were bringing in a special speaker. And that speaker talked about grace in a way that changed my life. And he convinced me that God could forgive someone like me. I could take you to the church. I could take you to the part of the sanctuary. And unless they've torn out the seats, I bet I could find the seat in which I was sitting. <laughs> when, when he said at the end of the sermon, if there's anybody here who wants to receive this forgiveness, come to the front. And I tell you, chains could not have held me down. Wow. Because the truth is, the chain of guilt had held me down for like four years. Sure. And I just made a beeline down to the front. And I got on my knees. And I said, oh, my goodness. And it was emotional. It was life-changing. And I knew, I knew when I left, I'd never be the same. 
And that's the day that to me was a real turning point in my life. That preacher's name was Doug Kostowski. And uh, he pastored that church in Miami, Florida, where I served for three years. And the pastor of the church that was hosting that meeting was Lynn Anderson. Wow. And he attends our church where I'm pastoring now. Oh, that's incredible. So those two men, they're in their 70s and closing in on their 80s now. Still great men of God. And I'll forever be in their debt. Max, that gives me goosebumps. I thank you so much for sharing that. It resonated with me in a big way as somebody who saw, well, partially saw several blurry-eyed Sunday mornings. I can relate. There was something about no matter what I was doing on Saturday night, there was a Sunday morning that I would find myself going to church and sitting in the back. And and here, you know, all these years later, you're writing books like In the Grip of Grace. And now I know where those titles come from (laughs) because you saw those chains fall and you knew that God had his hand on your life. I thank you for sharing that and sharing that so honestly. Um, I wonder, would you mind if we closed out our time together? I just wonder if someone's even listening to this right now and maybe they're thinking, gosh, you know, I don't know that I have that blue couch moment or that moment that Max just described. And I want that. I want those chains of guilt to fall once and for all. And I want to know that I've committed my life and my story to its rightful author, Jesus Christ. Mm. Would you mind just closing out this time together in a prayer for somebody who'd want to pray along with us? Thank you, Lord, for my brother Matthew, for his amazing ministry. Thank you, Father, for every song that he's ever written, especially this song that ministering to so many right now called Take Heart. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your kindness to him and to me. Thank you that you found us and you called us. And Lord, we'd ask you to do that, please, right now for somebody, some man, some woman, some boy, some girl. I especially have a heart for those who think they can never be forgiven, Mm. never be forgiven for those prodigal years or that bad decision. Mm those poor choices. Father, help them. Let your Holy Spirit speak to them that they may know that your grace is greater than their sin. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Max, I can't thank you enough. Thanks for sharing your story with me. And- hey, you do pretty good at this interview, I think. <laughs> I don't know if Jimmy Fallon is tired of his gig. <laughs> <laughs> I've done several of these now, but I didn't get nervous until talking to you. And hey, I get out of know here. You better than most of these people. Uh, that's funny. Hey, you're incredible, man. Your story continues to speak to people. Max, thank you. Thank you, brother. Now it's time for songs from the story house. Today's song from the story house is called Take Heart. Woke up this morning and life as you know it. Looks nothing like the kind of life you knew before I wish I could tell you that I have navigated this path of 2020 with the grace and the ease of a perfect Christian, but I gotta tell the truth, I've had a whole lot of stressful days which led to a whole lot of sleepless nights, some dark circles under the eyes. I wonder if anybody out there knows what I'm talking about. On more than one occasion, after tossing and turning in the middle of the night, I'd give up, I'd wake up, and I'd walk out here to the studio, the story house. I'd play piano, maybe pick up my guitar, just try to take my mind off things. I'd open my Bible and try to remind myself that God's got this, you know, that He's in control. One night I remember picking up my Bible and reading John chapter 16, verse 33. 
Jesus talked to his disciples, but it felt like he was talking to me right in that moment. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I don't know how to explain it. I read that scripture a thousand times before, but in that moment it felt like a spotlight was shining on those two words, take heart. And it was just the message that I needed. I'm talking about like this season of our lives where all of a sudden it was like, I was scared to go outside even, you know? Amazon packages show up and I feel like, I'm just gonna let the raccoons get whatever food was shipped to me because I'm scared. I gotta wipe down those packages. I know you guys know the feeling and a lot of us are still having those fearful feelings, you know? And that's what inspired the honesty in those lyrics. It don't feel safe to even step outside your door. But there it was, the invitation from Jesus telling me to take heart. Really, Lord? Take heart? I looked up that phrase in the dictionary and I found some similar meanings. Take courage. Don't give up. Keep going. I really felt like that's what Jesus was saying to me in that moment. I think that's what he's saying to us right now. He's reminding us that when we focus on the trouble in our world, it's going to look hopeless in a hurry. But when we focus on the fact that we can be best friends with the one who's already overcome the world, well, that's when we can take heart. That's when we can take courage and hope and peace and joy and everything he's trying to offer us in our weakest moments. Easier said than done, though, I know. The second verse took me back to vacation Bible school days, singing that old song. You remember that song? He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. And that's what inspired the words of this second verse. Do you remember singing? Back when you were younger He's got the whole world in his hands Well, that's still true I hold your family, all your friends And all your loved ones And even when you're barely holding on I'm holding you So take heart And take a breath And let me lift that heavy weight up off your chest And take my hand I know it's looking dark When the world falls all around you I won't let you fall apart Take heart In a lot of my songs, if you listen to more than one, chances are you're actually going to hear more than one scripture. It's because of moments like this. Reading that scripture in John is what sent me to the piano. I started playing that song. Take heart. Take a breath. Let me lift that heavy weight up off your chest. I was writing those words from the perspective of God because I felt like that's exactly what he was speaking to me through that scripture. Isn't that crazy how God's word really is alive and active? His word doesn't stay where it was when you read that verse the first time. It comes with you and returns to you in the moments when you need it most. I've written songs from a lot of different vantage points. Some songs are written after I've already made it through whatever difficult thing I was facing, but some songs... They're written right in the middle of the moment, right in the middle of the darkness where you can't even see the light that might be coming or when it's going to come. This is one of those songs just written right in the middle of it. And yet right in the middle of it, I was given a gift, a reminder that I could take heart because the trouble in this world is no match for the one who's overcome it. Maybe you're in the middle of it right now. I hope this song brings you comfort. More importantly, I hope you go look up John chapter 16, verse 33. 
Maybe write those two words down somewhere you can see it when you wake up in the morning. Take heart. He's holding your family, your friends, and all your loved ones. And even when you're barely holding on, he's holding you. So take heart and take a breath. And let me lift that heavy weight up off your chest. Take my hand. I know it's looking dark. When the world falls all around you, I won't let you fall apart. So take heart, child, take heart. Oh, here we go. It's that time where we go to Reverend Joseph West, a.k.a. my father, a.k.a. my dad, a.k.a. the reason why this segment is called Dad Vice, a.k.a. I'm going to stop saying AKA. He is my dad and he gives good advice. And that's why this segment is called Dad Vice. Dad, I haven't always welcomed your advice in my life. I will acknowledge that. Like every kid, there's been seasons in my life where I've told you where to stick that advice. (laughs) But today, I am asking you to stick this advice in the podcast. So what's your word for today? Hey, my word for today (laughs) is peace. Man, we need this word today. I mean, our world has been through seasons the likes of which none of us have ever experienced before, and peace has been in short supply. That's awesome. Yes. There are actually two kinds of peace that we all need. We need peace with God. That means that we've settled the sin problem and Mm. asked Jesus Christ to come into our heart. And there we have peace with God now and for eternity. And then we need the peace of God. We live in a crazy Mm. world. And um, my wife and I, uh, this year, will both turned 70 years old and 50 years of marriage. And we look back at some real trying times, times that we were troubled, times that we were facing mountains and anxious about everything and worried. Then it would always bring us back to the promise of God's peace. Our scripture is Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. And it says, Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Is there a verse that's harder to live by than that? I mean, I struggle with that so much. That first sentence. Read that first sentence again. Do not be anxious about anything. (laughs) I mean... (laughs) Good luck with that, right? You know, I, sometimes I read these scriptures and I just think, okay, Lord, I get it. These scriptures are highlighting my inability to keep the commands of scripture, which only highlights my need for Jesus that much more. Yes. I struggle with anxiousness in my life. And I think everybody does on different levels. You know, for some that turns into a panic attack, for some that turns into anger, sleepless nights, whatever it may be. I had my first panic attack while I was getting an MRI on my neck and I was having this terrible pain in my neck and I couldn't figure out why. I was losing sleep at night. They were giving me Ambien and I didn't like taking Ambien. And so I thought, well, I'm going to go get an MRI. And the nurse said, are you claustrophobic before she put me in this tube? And I was like, no. And she's like, great, well, this should be easy. And then they wheel me into this tube. And the first 
five to 10 minutes of it, I'm fine. I'm actually thinking I'm going to take a nap. Then all of a sudden, these thoughts that I just couldn't control started to literally overwhelm me. And next thing I know, I am dripping in sweat from head to toe. And all I'm thinking about is I couldn't raise my arms if I wanted to. I felt like helpless and I could not control. And I had to shout to the nurse to stop the test, take me out of the tube. And I felt like I felt so embarrassed, like a little child. And I kept apologizing to the nurse. And I think about that, you know, in a spiritual term, that was a moment where I literally couldn't get a grip on my emotions and I felt really like it was out of my control. And then I read that scripture and I'm like, Lord, I am incapable of being anxious for nothing. I get anxious over everything. Lord, help me with that. Sometimes anxiety wins. It wins the battle. It's not going to win the war. But you've had days, I'm sure, where your most anxious thoughts seem to overcome you. And how has the Lord brought you peace in those times when you just couldn't get a grip? Well, what I'm thankful for is that he he just never gives up on us when we show our human side yeah. that he is there and he's patient with us. Sometimes it becomes a really great battle and the devil knows our Achilles heel, our weakness. And if he can get us anxious for a period of time, but knowing that there's always a light in the tunnel and that God's going to bring us through it. And I'm so thankful that he stays with us during that time. And really that anxiety in my life, I can choose one of two roads once I feel that anxiety, control or surrender. And I think that's what scripture is trying to teach us is do not be anxious about anything. Okay, well, good luck to us achieving that. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, which another word for supplication is is asking for prayer, right? Isn't yeah, that intercession. Intercession yeah. is going to God. Yes. Present your request to God. And so at every turn, the Lord is trying to tell us, look, you can't handle that thing on your own, but look to me and I will help bring you through that. And so I hope you acknowledge that. I hope you recognize the ultimate grace that's being extended your way. Anxiety is going to come, but when it does come, you have a choice to make control or surrender. And anxiety is really the proof and the evidence that we are not in control because we get that anxiety rising up in our lives and that anxiousness rising up because we're in the middle of something that we can't fix. And the Lord's saying, hey, when you surrender to me, I'm going to bring you through that. Not only am I going to bring you through that, but I'm going to give you peace for the journey. And so thanks for that good word. I needed that today. And I know there's a lot of people who are feeling like peace is in short supply in our world right now. Thanks for the encouragement. Hey, this is been another segment of dad vice and i hope you've come to enjoy these i know i have i want to encourage you to go visit my dad and i have a ministry called popwe.org you hear us talk about it every episode and the ministry is in place to help you learn how to craft share and live a more meaningful life and a more meaningful story with your life. So go visit popwe.org. When you go to the website, you can experience some incredible uplifting stories to remind you that there's hope for all of your stories. You can tell your own story. Who knows, you might wind up on one of these podcasts and I'll be telling your story. You can submit a prayer request or you can sign up to receive a free weekly Devo. We call them Day One Devos. It's a free email that comes to your inbox once a week with an encouraging scripture, just like you've heard here on Dad Vice, as a reminder of the importance of spending time with Jesus. That's the only true path to peace. Dad, thanks for being here and giving us some good dad advice. Thank you. Well, that's our show for today. I want to thank our special guest and my good friend Max Licato for joining us, for sharing his story. 
and he was just as inspiring as he always has been. We're going to post all the information about his books, where you can find him on socials, and more about his ministry in the show notes of this podcast. Just go to matthewwest.com slash podcast. When you go there, you'll also be able to find the other episodes that we launched with. Don't forget, we launched just last week with three episodes, one featuring an interview with Mark Hall from Casting Crowns, number two, an interview with Sadie Robertson and her mom, Corey Robertson, and then a third episode that featured you, your questions, and your stories called a VIP Q&A. So be sure to go and binge listen to every episode from the Matthew West Podcast. Also want to thank my dad and his awesome message about peace. I'm so glad we get to do dad advice in each episode. Last, you can find a link at the show notes for the song Take Heart if you'd like to go and listen to that or share it with somebody who needs some encouragement today. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Matthew West Podcast and for making the launch of this new show so special. I love y'all. Have a great day. Seriously, I, I, I do.